my first company, Centrata, was much more typical. We spent nine months raising money with probably a hundred different no's before we got one yes. And the moment you get one yes, you get many yeses. Welcome to the MIT Catalysts, a podcast series by the MIT Club of Northern California. Each episode, host Julia Yu interviews MIT alumni, faculty, and affiliates who are movers and shakers in the Bay Area. Today we have Shashir Marotra here with us. Uh, we are uh, on a ship, the USS Hornet, and Shashir will be sharing with us his experiences around entrepreneurship. Um, so we're excited to be here. Could you introduce yourself? Uh, sure. I'm Shashir uh, here for the MIT annual meeting. Uh, I was class of 2000 at MIT. Uh, I then started a company called Centrata that was uh, founded with uh, one other MIT alum and then six, the first six people we hired were from MIT as well. And then we, um, I went up to Microsoft and I worked at Microsoft for about six years. And then I joined Google uh, and I co-ran the YouTube division at Google for about six years. And then I started a company called Coda about five years ago. And we build a new type of document. It's an all-in-one document where the promise is that it allows anyone to make docs as powerful as apps. Great. So what would success look like to you in five years for Coda? Oh, boy, that's a deep question. Uh, success for Coda. So I, there's a few different ways I could look at it uh, from a there's a number of typical business success metrics that people look at. And, you know, you want to see a company succeed and have great revenue and profitability and go public. Uh, I started Coda because it's a product I really wanted to see exist. And I really wanted to see everybody be able to use. So if, I think if we're successful, we become a surface of choice for people when they're doing everything from things that are very small, like taking notes and meetings, all the way to things like running events or running companies. Uh, you know, one, one of the things I just noticed here is they're running the MIT CNC club on Coda, which is pretty exciting. Um, but we, we, mostly measure ourselves by how much adoption and how how broad the adoption is. Very exciting. So any surprises starting Coda? Any failure points that you could share with us and how you've been able to overcome them? Uh, Let's see, surprises. Uh, I mean, starting a company is always full of surprises. I think the... um, A few buckets of things I would probably think of. I mean, in terms of the, the market, I'd say the product is one where... The most of the challenge is on a balance between simplicity and power. So it's a very powerful product. It, it sort of replaces documents, spreadsheets, presentations, and applications all in one. Um, and so there's a number of people that on one side push the limits on that much further than we expected and put a lot of pressure on us to, to be able to support scenarios that we didn't anticipate supporting. Uh, on the other side of it, it starts as a document. It's a blinking cursor on a blank screen. And so there's a lot of... Uh, demand for very simple experiences to to finish uh, what people expect in that world. Um, One thing that was surprising to me was how international the product was. We launched and I I had uh, hoped that we would be U.S. and English only for some time before we had to to worry about localization. Uh, But very quickly, the product spread in a number of countries around the world. And so we had to deal with that right away, uh, which is a little bit unexpected. We're, We're about 40% U.S. now, 60% outside the U.S., uh, and we're only six months past launch. Um, I'd say in terms of uh, issues and failures and so on, I think if you ask any entrepreneur that question and you get a, a real response, you'll probably hear something about people. Uh, and almost always, especially in a small company, uh, picking the right people is the heart of success. And anytime you have someone you pick that didn't ro- end up working out right, that ends up being uh, uh, some of the toughest situations to deal with. So I want to push on that a little bit more. What are the top three attributes you look for in a person when you hire? Uh, so let's see attributes I look for and I, and I should say my my lens on these 
may not be the same as uh, as everyone else's. Um, you know, I think at uh, if I sort of think about them in stages, uh, there's an acronym an old boss gave me. It's P S H E, and the the uh, the acronym is not by itself that memorable, but it's uh, problem solution how execution. And the way I think about it is uh, early on in people's uh, careers, they sort of focus on the E. They they get handed a problem, they get handed a solution, they get handed a how, a set of instructions for how to do things, and then their job is just to execute. And so first first level you look for is people who can execute on a given plan. Uh, the next level up is. Uh, you get uh, PSH. So these are people where you hand them a problem, you hand them a rough solution, and they can figure out the how. They can figure out how to execute on it. They, they figure out how to organize a team, what the structure should be, what the timeline should be, what the milestone should be. Uh, they might find creative ways to approach a partnership or how to write a piece of code or, or so on. Uh, one step ahead of that is uh, people, we, we call them the PS level, where where uh, you hand them a problem and they come up with a solution, often a creative solution to, uh, to hard problems, maybe a solution nobody's thought of before. And then finally, at the top of that pyramid is people uh, that we I think of as at the P level, where you hand them a space and they tell you the problems. And they'll, they'll come to you and say, actually, I, I, you said to focus over here and you thought this metric was a problem or you thought this... Uh, this design was a problem or this customer, uh, but I actually think the the real problem we should be focused on is somewhere totally different. And so uh, if you sort of think about that in stages, people who can execute well on a given plan, people who can construct the right plan, people who can cor- uh, construct the right solution, and then people who can figure out which problems to focus on, sort of my staging, how I think about people. Sounds like you have a pretty rigorous framework down for recruiting people. Uh, so if you, uh, hindsight 2020, go back to um, 2000, what would you tell your young self uh, what would I tell my young self at 2000? Um, I mean, lots of things that were probably unexpected. I mean, one that's probably relevant to this podcast is I don't think it was as clear to me 20 years later how important my alumni network would be. Um, I started this company with a uh, with an MIT alum. My other company also started with an MIT alum. Uh, a, lot, a lot of our best friends are MIT alums. It's a network that is, uh, you know, you go through college and you, uh, you think, you know, how important the grades are and you think about which classes you're taking. Uh, and one of the things you may miss is that the bonds you're forming are some of the strongest bonds you'll have throughout your life. And I think that uh, many people underestimate the impact of that. Take note to our young listeners. Right, I'm going to switch gears a little bit to raising money. So this is a, uh, for first-time entrepreneurs, you know, there's just many pathways they can take, right? Do they raise from angels? Do they raise from VCs? How to navigate the process? Do you have any tips or tricks for fundraising? Coda was a little bit atypical. We raised money basically right as we started. Um, and uh, and so I'm not sure that's typical for mo- most companies. My first company, Centrata, was much more typical. We spent nine months raising money with probably 100 different no's before we got one yes. And at the moment you get one yes, you get many yeses. Uh, and so, I mean, I guess a few things I would think about, I mean, just one, one sort of hinted in there is that you'll get lots of no's. The moment you get one, you only need one yes. And almost inevitably, when you, once you get one yes, you'll get other uh, yeses. Um, I think that uh, developing those relationships, you have to remember as well that the other side of that table, you have a set of investors who um, who are learning and they're they're them saying no to you. You shouldn't take it personally. They're 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 see they see a hundred different things and uh, it might be something they haven't seen yet. Maybe it's something that you have to explain yourself better. Um, but give them a give them a chance to come around. Uh, I've seen a number of companies where the eventual investors is someone who who passed earlier and then gra- gradually figures out that's a thing that they they care a lot about. 
Um, I mean, in terms of stages, I'm a pretty active investor myself, and so uh, angel investor and and uh, late stage investor as well. Um, and I think it's important to just put yourselves in the shoes of of those people, and the so, some of them will have. Uh, interests that you can get aligned uh maybe even before you have a startup idea uh and and find out from from that community who would be interested in in helping you out great thank you for that advice all right um i want to push a little bit more on the overcoming failure so you said that you got a lot of no's before you got a yes so what what inspires you what gives you grit uh I think it's probably one of the hardest things to describe for an entrepreneur is that perseverance. And I don't think there's a great formula for it because I do think there's times when you get a lot of no's and you really should listen. And that's uh, that actually isn't a very good idea. But, the you know, I often define an entrepreneur uh, as the as the person who believes so strongly in their idea that everybody else thinks is crazy, but they can create. I, I think there's. Um, I think Peter Thiel wrote a wrote a uh, uh, a piece about that in a zero to one book that a, a startup is defined by the the smallest possible set of people you can convince uh, that your idea is actually not that crazy when everybody else thinks it is. And I think that's true of most uh, most startups, and so you have to on one side you have to recognize that most successful startups had everybody else thinking that uh, every everyone else thinking that it was a dumb idea for a long period of time, uh, and on the flip side, there there actually are some dumb ideas, uh, and so you have like figuring out that balance. And there's no science to that; it's just uh, that's your instinct and gut. Uh, one thing, one question I often like to ask people, just to remove one piece of bias out of that, is ask yourself if you'd be willing to be employee ten at your own startup. Um, and what was one thing I'll see a lot is people will start a company with the mindset of I'm starting a company because I get to be my own boss, um, which is uh, actually just as a side note, I think is not really true and, and, and not that attractive. Um, but the but there's definitely a case where people will say, well, here's an idea that I'm willing to do only if I'm the founder. And that's generally a bad signal is that you, you want to work on things where the, the next set of people, not everybody can be the founder, but where the next set of people feel just as excited about it as you. And so asking yourself that question, what if I found if, if I was out looking and the startup was in market and they wanted to hire me as employee number 10, would I be as excited as I am to start the company? If the answer to that question is no, you probably shouldn't start. That's an excellent way to keep yourself honest. Do you have a personal board of advisors that you consult? Uh, yeah, I have. I haven't. I haven't sort of officially named them that way, but I've always had a, a great set of advisors. Some some of them are on my actual board, and I, I I think I did a pretty good job of constructing that board so that the the first people I turn to uh, actually are my my real board of advisors. Uh, but I always keep a list of people that I work with. I tried as hard as I could to get as many of them as possible to actually invest in the company. One one small. Tip I tell people is uh, when you're starting out a company, a lot of people will be willing to write very small checks just to support you. And I would, uh, I, for some reason, entrepreneurs don't love doing that. I think it's very smart. Get get uh, get those people. Just give them a little feeling of uh, of participation in your in your journey, even if it's a not a meaningful amount of money to them or to you. And then beyond that, you know, keep a list of uh, people who've been helpful to you, people who can uh, who aren't just yes yes men for you, and will tell you when you're when you're off track and give you honest advice and and consult them often. Thank you. All right, and last but not least, what is your entrepreneurship secret sauce? My entrepreneurship secret sauce. I don't know. That's a that's a really hard question. I, I guess I mean if people had to describe me and and the type of entrepreneur I am. Um, I think that willingness to see the world a little bit differently than everyone else uh, is 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 that key characteristic. And there's there are definitely some entrepreneurs who thrive on um, 
sort of executing on an opportunity that may may like will have a limited time window and 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 so on. That that's generally not how I've done it. But the, most of the things I've worked on are things where there's some view of the world that not everybody else can see, but that I I feel like I can see clearly. And uh, and just being just being persistent in keeping that in mind, convincing everybody around you that it's possible, and then every day trying to get the company to move one step forward towards that vision. Thank you so much, Shashir. It's been an absolute pleasure. All right. Thank you. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of the MIT Catalysts. This episode was hosted by Julia Yu and produced by me, Irina Fisher-Huang. Special thanks to our guest, Shishir Marotra, for taking the time to chat with us. Thanks also to the MIT Club of Northern California, which sponsors this podcast. Make sure to subscribe to our podcast through Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. Until next time, we're the MIT Catalysts.